Put out in podcast form of scripture, how to pray with scripture, uh, introduction to the Old Testament, and introduction to the New Testament. I decided that I will now be including on this podcast the audio to my weekly Bible study. So I hope you enjoy. Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 7.30 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live or via Zoom, please email me and let me know. We can get you plugged in, get you the link for that, or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, uh, we, we come here tonight, this evening, in community, grateful to be together once again, but also in this holiest of weeks. We ask, Lord, that you give us the ability to walk with you in a new way throughout this week, and the liturgies we'll celebrate in the ways that we are praying, the ways that we are walking toward this Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter Sunday, and all of the liturgies and sacraments and different events and um, things that we'll be remembering during this time and celebrating. And we pray, Lord, that um, the victory of your resurrection would be at the center of all that we do, all that we are, it would be the source of our hope, and in all the ways that this week we remember times of darkness and all of the ways we are carrying darkness, worry, or anxiety with us, that we would always have our eyes fixed on the hope of the resurrection. And so tonight, Lord, as we dive into one version of that story of the empty tomb, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see the hope there is, that the greatest gift that we've ever received is empty. And we pray, Lord, that um, you help us to know that more deeply tonight and to receive this word tonight in whatever way you're seeking to challenge each one of us, comfort us, give us answers to our questions, whatever it may be that we're looking for, Lord, pray that we Receive it and be open and ready to hear it tonight. So we ask that you remove any distractions from our midst, any worries or anxieties. We lay this time and all of our intentions at your feet, asking, as always, that your will be done. We pray all this in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good evening. We are in John chapter 20, verses 1 through 9. This is the gospel for this upcoming Sunday, which will be Easter Sunday, the resurrection of the Lord. Um, so a time of victory, time to celebrate, but not yet, because we're still in the midst of Holy Week. But this is what we have to look forward to in our gospel this weekend. So uh, we're going to read through this twice through, as usual. First time through, as always, I will encourage you to try and pretend as though you've never heard this story before. This particular narrative account of the finding of the empty tomb in John is very descriptive, it's very detailed. So I really encourage you to kind of pay attention to these little details as they're, as they're read and really try and visualize them, paint this picture uh, as if you're painting it for the first time in your head. So let's read this together, first time through, John 20, 1 through 9. On the first day of the week, Mary of Magdala came to the tomb early in the morning, while it was still dark, and saw the stone removed from the tomb. So she ran 
and went to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and told them, They have taken the Lord from the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciple went out and came to the tomb. They both ran, but the other disciple ran faster than Peter and arrived at the tomb first. He bent down and saw the burial cloths there, but did not go in. When Simon Peter arrived after him, he went into the tomb and saw the burial cloths there, and the cloth that had covered his head, not with the burial cloths, but rolled up in a separate place. Then the other disciple also went in, the one who had arrived at the tomb first, and he saw and believed. For they did not yet understand the scripture, that he had to rise from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So obviously this is on Easter morning, after the events of Holy Week, after Jesus has entered triumphantly into Jerusalem, which we commemorated yesterday on Palm Sunday. We heard the events that transpired during the midst of Holy Week, the Last Supper, which we will celebrate uh, the Mass of the Lord's Supper this Thursday, the crucifixion, passion, death of Jesus this Friday and Good Friday, and that waiting time of him being buried in the tomb. Uh, there was that waiting time in between because it was the Sabbath, and uh, you could not prepare bodies or anything like that in between, so we have this kind of time in between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. So it says on the first day of week, that's where we are. We're on that third day, um, what we would now call Sunday, uh, the third day after the crucifixion. So the second time through, I invite you to listen more deeply, more closely, uh, try and hang just on the words, and just focus on the image now you've created in your mind and see if any particular word stands out or strikes you in any way. It doesn't have to do with the text itself. Uh, in fact, it's better if it just stands out to you because it resonates with you personally for some reason. It connects to a prayer intention, reminds you of something else in Scripture or in your own life, whatever it may be. So no word is too insignificant or confusing or meaningless to, uh, to latch on to. So... Uh, whatever word or phrase it is, underline it, remember it, and reflect on it. Begin to ask, why this, Lord? What are you trying to say to me? John 20, starting again in verse 1. On the first day of the week, Mary of Magdala came to the tomb early in the morning, while it was still dark, and saw the stone removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, whom Jesus loved, and told them, They have taken the Lord from the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciple went out and came to the tomb. They both ran, but the other disciple ran faster than Peter and arrived at the tomb first. He bent down and saw the burial cloths there, but did not go in. When Simon Peter arrived after him, he went into the tomb and saw the burial cloths there, and the cloth that had covered his head, not with the burial cloths, but rolled up in a separate place. Then the other disciple also went in, the one who had arrived at the tomb first, and he saw and believed. For they did not yet understand the scripture that he had to rise from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So as we reflect over this gospel for this upcoming Sunday and the things that stood out to us, 
I invite you to uh, just take a moment to reflect on those things. Ask the Lord, maybe in prayer, why this? Um, what did it remind you of? What do you think uh, it means to you specifically? And then take a few moments to just share those things with the people around you. What stood out and why? Any questions that arose within you as you heard this and went through it? If you're watching this on Zoom, please do that in the chat. Or if you're watching on YouTube later, maybe share that in the comments. But for those of us here, take a few moments to do that with the people around you. All right, I would love to hear some of your thoughts, your questions, what things stood out to you. Yes, Katie. Vicky, she was just observing that the other disciple ran fast but did not go in. It seems strange to hurry and then stop and wait for Peter. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a really entertaining interplay between this, this race, between um, the disciple whom Jesus loved and Peter, um, indicating that uh, Peter couldn't keep up. There's maybe a brotherly sense of competition there. Um, if the disciple whom Jesus loved is John, which many people believe it to be, and John wrote this gospel, then I think it would probably be John was the youngest of the apostles. It would probably be like the younger brother of the group thing to do, to be like, I'm going to write about Jesus, but I'm also not going to let Peter forget the time that I totally whipped him in a race. <laughs> you know, and just like, because you see it this whole time. You know, they both ran, but the other disciple ran faster. When Peter arrived after him, he went into the tomb. Then the other disciple also went in, the one who arrived at the tomb first. You know, it's just like he's not letting him forget. Um, could also be a sign that, like, they wanted to demonstrate the fact that John, though he was younger, had this greater strength or ability to be able to run faster, but he um, negated the authority that he could, or the ability that he could have had to go in because Peter had the authority as the head of the apostles, and he waited for his okay. So all of those things are kind of at play here, um, if John really is the disciple whom Jesus loved. So, um, yeah, but it's a fun little detail. That's the thing, that always stands out to me when I read this, it's just the, the fact that John's like, <laughs> yeah. Would you be kind and expand a little bit on the figure of uh, Mary of Magdalene? Sure, yes. So uh, Mary Magdalene, um, in Luke chapter 8, um, we get a little glimpse of Mary Magdalene. She was one of the disciples who followed Jesus. That was very unusual. Not, I won't say very unusual. It was unheard of for a rabbi to have female disciples. It's something very revolutionary in Jesus. And we hear this, heard in the account in Luke and the Passion narrative yesterday where Jesus uh, talks to the women who had been following him. He says, do not weep, daughters of Jerusalem. These women who had been taking care of his needs. He had a lot of women who had um, covered the expenses for him and the disciples to travel or, or uh, live and eat in certain areas for different times as they were ministering. Um, but Mary Magdalene, in Luke chapter 8, verse 2, um, it says, accompanying him were the twelve, and some women who had been cured of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, whom, from whom seven demons had gone out, Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, Chusa, Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their resources. So these women are obviously prominent figures later in the church, otherwise they wouldn't necessarily be worth mentioning. Um, and they did prominent things at this time with Jesus. Um, it probably would have been a very, again, I think we talked about this last week, um, like, why are certain details are left in the Bible? Because they have to be true, otherwise there's no reason why anyone would make them up. Like if someone wanted to give Jesus this credit of being this great rabbi and the son of God, nobody would make up the fact that he had female disciples. It'd be the worst piece of evidence for that time because nobody would have seen that as a viable thing for a rabbi to do. So the fact that it's there 
shows that it's historically accurate. There's no other reason for it to be there. Um, and these women were probably very prominent people in the early church, probably helped lead little house churches and stuff as the church developed and stuff like that. Um, and I believe all three of those women, um, oh, with the exception of Susanna, um, all show up in different resurrection accounts uh, in the Gospels of uh, people going to Jesus' tomb. But Mary Magdalene is the only one in every, all four of the Gospel accounts who's always there, always there at the tomb. Or she's the one who's always mentioned directly. And so she was obviously a very prominent figure in the church, very close to Jesus, and Jesus meant a lot to her because she was possessed by seven demons. And, you know, you don't forget someone who radically transforms your life. Like, that's why I love how the Chosen series starts with Mary Magdalene. Episode one, like, that's the first encounter. And it's clear throughout that series how much Jesus means to her. Um, other than that, we don't know too much about her. Magdala, um, there's two places called Magdala, um, or, or um, cities that sound like that are sometimes transcribed differently. But we believe that Magdala was the city on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. So it's about, like I think, like six or seven miles maybe west around the coast from Capernaum, not too far. Um, and so it was in that area that Jesus ministered in and traveled in uh, very consistently during his adult years. Um, and otherwise, we just know that she traveled with him and was involved in the early church. I believe there is an apocryphal gospel of Mary Magdalene that was written later. It's attributed to her, um, but it's not directly written by her, obviously, but it has some other accounts, but didn't make it to scripture because it didn't meet the, the requirements of a, um, being part of the revelation of the apostles. So, yeah. Go ahead. George. <laughs> okay. I was just, uh, just went back and took a look at um, Matthew chapter 28. <laughs> he writes about the resurrection. Yes. And it seems like uh, John is, 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 is the cliff notes to what really went on. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's, I always thought, well, Mary, the mother of God, was there too. And, and over in, um, in John, she's not there. Um, you know, the, there's an earthquake and an angel rolls back the, the rock. And over here in John, they got there and the rock had been rolled back. So, you know, it's mm -hmm. like, what is it? Yeah. <laughs> Why the, why the discrepancy between the two, or why was one so edited that it was, you know, it, it didn't tell the whole story of what was going on? Yeah, I think the whole story is, you know, all of them, right? Because, you know, you could have four people standing on four different corners of an intersection and witness a car accident, and they're all going to say different things happened, right? Um, but they're all kind of observing things that were true, or they're only, only visible from their perspective. Uh, and also when these, like, like incredible things happen, whether they're very traumatic or very powerful and positive, we tend to like kind of almost go into this kind of mental shock. And it's very difficult sometimes to remember the details clearly. And then when we recount it later, we somehow kind of amalgamated different things that were told to us or that we misunderstood or thought happened or thought we saw. And so I think some of that is at play here. But when you kind of see all these um, like side by side, all four gospel accounts, there's nothing really contradictory about them. It's just certain details are kind of placed or emphasized in some and not in others. Um, so Mary Magdalene's always there. In Matthew and in Mark, she's with uh, Salome, who we believe is the mother of James and John. And then another woman named Mary, um, Mary who was the mother of Joseph, who was a relative of Jesus, so it's probably his aunt. 
And in fact, many people think that James and John were his cousins as well. So he has a mom and two aunts named Mary, very likely. <laughs> so lots of Mary. Salome's nickname was Mary. So it's Mary, Mary, and Mary. Um, and Mary Magdalene. So four Marys. Um, and then in Luke, it was Mary Magdalene with Joanna, one of those women mentioned in Luke 11, traveled with Jesus, and the Blessed Mother. So only in Luke do we have the mother of Jesus showing up as being there. And then in John, you obviously see it's just Mary Magdalene who's mentioned there. But in verse, um, what verse is this? It's hard for me to see. Uh, verse 2, when she goes back to the apostles, she says, we don't know where they put him. Now, I don't know. We don't know. Implying there were other people with her. And so that kind of aligns with the other gospel accounts that there was a group of women who went to the tomb. Um, some say to anoint the body, but in this gospel account, we see the body's already been anointed, which would be typical. Um, and so maybe people who were writing thought that's what they were going to do because the Sabbath was the day before and thought they couldn't do it. But they were going there very likely because there was a belief that um, the soul of a departed uh, person resided in the area of their body for three days after their death. It's just kind of a, a common belief at the time. That's why uh, Jesus waits until the fourth day to go see Lazarus and raise him from the dead. So that nobody can believe or say like, oh, his spirit was still around. It was just kind of a fluke. Um, so it's one of the kind of key weird details in that account of the, the raising of Lazarus in John 11. Um, so they can go, and she really, I think, just wants to be in the presence of his spirit that is believed to still be there in some capacity before it goes where they believe souls go down to Sheol. Um, so... Yeah, I think that that's why we have differing accounts, but I don't think any of them conflict. They all go, they see, witness the tomb opening or see it open. And there's some kind of powerful encounter there with angels there um, in, in the tomb or announcing what happened. There's an announcement to the apostles. The apostles go investigate. And then there's these different encounters with Jesus that then happen that day and throughout the, the following weeks. Yeah, Lynn. Do you happen to know about the burial practices of this time? Yeah. Um, the reason why I ask that is because it says here that there's the, the cloth mm -hmm. that covers the body, but then it mentions another cloth mm -hmm. the head. So if, for example, there was no, unless there were two pieces of cloth mm -hmm. that were over his head, the Shroud of Turin is one piece of cloth mm -hmm. showing the head and the body. Yes. So yeah. I don't know how that works. Yeah, so there are there are two, well, actually, technically, in the, the story of Jesus' passion and his death, there are actually three cloths that are mentioned. Uh, one is the veil of Veronica, which we have as part of our tradition. It's one of the stations of the cross where Veronica wipes the face of Jesus. And Veronica's veil was actually something that was reverenced, and uh, it was a relic that was kind of toured through Europe, ended up at St. Peter's, old St. Peter's in Rome. And then uh, that's where the last we hear record of it. But we don't know if they still have it. We don't know if it was moved. It's not anywhere on display. Um, but that's just part of kind of tradition. And then there's these two cloths, the Shroud of Turin, and then the Sudarian of Oviedo, which is his face cloth. So it was traditional that a cloth, a cloth would be placed over the head and then a full body cloth as well. I don't, can't remember which one first. Um, but usually that was what was happening, what, how they were buried. Their body was anointed with spices and oils. And then their body was coated in myrrh. And myrrh is a very sticky substance. It almost helps like mummify a body, preserve it, and adhere the uh, linen to the body. And that happened to Jesus um, in the previous verses to this. In verse 39 of the previous chapter, Nicodemus, 
The one who had first come to him at night also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes weighing about 100 pounds. They took the body of Jesus, bound it with burial cloths, along with the spices, according to Jewish burial custom. So Jesus would have been super glued to this cloth. Okay, so we often imagine he's just like laying there and you're bloody and, you know, not alive, of course, but they just like kind of lay this, this cloth. No, he would have been almost mummified in a sense, wrapped, bound by this particular cloth and it would be stuck to his body. So there'd be two layers of cloth over his face. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And both of them uh, have miraculous images on them. The Sudarium of Oviedo, I believe, is in San Salvador, Spain. Uh, it may have moved since then, uh, but you, you can go see that today. You can go see a replica of the Shroud of Turin in the Turin and the uh, Cathedral in uh, Torino, Italy. And it's sometimes the real one, sometimes brought out for display, but it's very fragile and very old, so not always. Matt? Um, two things. One thing, I know you mentioned the literary device of the one who Jesus loved. Like John probably did that to put us in his place as the church. Mm -hmm. But I think it's interesting that, you know, when they mentioned that he got there first, but he let Peter go before him, that's kind of, I guess, more evidence for the papacy of just him being mm -hmm. the leader of the church, which I thought was interesting. And two, we had a question about the last verse where it says, For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Did, was there no prophetic? evidence of him rising from the dead? There is, but it's subtle. And it was not the expected prophecies that people were hoping to be fulfilled by the Messiah. So every prophecy that we know of that's messianic prophecy in the Old Testament, I, I, the list that I know of is 353 were fulfilled by Jesus. All of the rest that have yet to be fulfilled have to do with his second coming, when he returns at the end of time. But all of the other ones that have to do with the Messiah coming the first time, Jesus fulfilled in some capacity. Um, and some of them, not a lot of them, but some of them have some of this language in it. So the most direct one is in the prophet Hosea chapter 6. Um, and in chapter 6 verse 2 it says, He will revive us after two days. On the third day he will raise us up to live in his presence. So we have that kind of resurrection imagery and the use of three days. Um, also Psalm 16 verse 10 for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor let your devout ones see the pit. Now, the belief in the Jewish uh, afterlife cosmology was that every soul went to this place called Sheol, and it was the, the place of the afterlife. It's often translated as kind of Hades or the underworld. And there was this divide, this chasm between the two different sides of Sheol. And there was a good side that was kind of a holding place for the day that the Messiah would come and raise everyone up um, to heaven on, on that day. And that was called the Abraham's bosom. And you see this, there's a parable, I believe, in the, in the Gospel of Luke, where there's um, Lazarus, the poor man, a different Lazarus, and the tax collector. Um, and Lazarus is begging for food at the door of the tax collector, and he gives him nothing, and then they both die, and there's this interaction with them in the afterlife, where Lazarus, this poor man, is on the good side in Abraham's bosom, and this Pharisee is on the bad side in Gehenna in hell. And he's looking over and he's just saying, can you please go and tell my brothers, um, you know, about, you know, what happens here? I don't want them to end up like I did. And the response, either I think it's from Abraham or it's from uh, Lazarus, is, um, you know, they have Moses. And if they won't listen to Moses, they're not going to listen to me. Uh, and so it's a not often read parable, but I believe it's in the Gospel of Luke. So that was their belief. So if this psalm says, for you will not abandon my soul to shield, nor let your devout one see the pit, that kind of implies that there's, that's not the end. You know, there's a next step that's awaiting, and that would imply some sort of resurrection. 
Um, and lastly, in Ezekiel, verse uh, 12 of chapter 37, so 37, chapter 12, um, Ezekiel says, Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Look, I am going to open your graves. I will make you come up out of your graves, my people, and bring you back to the land of Israel. So not only does do some of these prophecies have to do with the Messiah promising resurrection, but we will be resurrected with him. Um, the belief about the Messiah was there's a lot of different figures that were associated with the Messiah. In Deuteronomy 18.15, there is a prophecy that one greater than Moses will come along, a prophet. And so whenever you hear them say, is this the prophet? Is this the prophet? We're talking about Jesus. They're talking about, is this the next Moses that was promised in Deuteronomy? You often hear them describing Jesus as Elijah. Elijah was taken up into heaven. He was assumed into heaven um, back in 1st or 2nd Kings or 1st or 2nd Samuel. 1st Kings would be 1st Kings. Taken up into heaven. It was believed that he would return and be part of that messianic fulfillment if he was not the messianic figure himself. And then lastly was King David, that this Messiah was going to be in the line of King David, born in the city of David in Bethlehem, and was going to be, they believed, a military leader like King David was to expand the kingdom of Israel back to its former glory when it was a kingdom. And now things are all divided and they're oppressed by foreign powers and they wanted that kind of glory days of Israel in the first temple period to be reinstated. So that was everything that they were expecting. So that's why Jesus is so unexpected and so disliked by so many people who adhere to the law because they wanted a lawgiver like Moses, a prophet like Elijah, and a military leader um, to overthrow Roman oppression like King David. They had no real attachment to those few verses about resurrection and new life, and they probably could have interpreted them as like, he's going to bring new life to our lives here. We're dead in this situation. We're oppressed. We can do nothing. We don't have this fruitful life like we used to back in the good old days, and the Messiah will come and make all that right again. Um, so there is reference to it in the Old Testament, but it was not something anyone was expecting. And so when Je that's why when Jesus says these things, like, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die and be raised up, they're like, what the heck is this guy talking about? Like, they, they never get it, even until the very end. It's not until after it happens that it starts to make sense. Yeah, Marco. Just as a side to that, we were talking about the fact that how, you know, that they didn't understand the scripture, and we were talking about, okay, how did the people in those times learn about the scripture? I mean, obviously the rabbis, but mm -hmm. I, know, I know they were supposed to memorize it, but I mean, did they have anything beyond that teaching to, to really reference? No, it was all oral tradition, all worship in the temple and in local synagogues. Well, the temple was a place of sacrifice. Um, and worship, and then the synagogue was the place of instruction. So to go to the synagogue at least once a week, probably multiple times a week, um, to hear instruction from rabbis. Children would go every day for rabbinical school to learn at least the Torah until they were about 10 years old, and then the best students would go and memorize more, and this just habit of oral tradition uh, and repeating those things in, in school and then in the home. There were very common prayers laws and, uh, and uh, things that were said every day, like the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6. That was a prayer that was recited multiple times a day. So it was just this pattern of life that, like, this was their sacred text, you know, and just like, just like, wait, we go through, you know, life and we have conversations like, oh, have you seen that latest TV show? Or you get a song stuck in your head or something like that. All they had was scripture. They didn't have like the entertainment stuff that we do. So all those conversations we might have over dinner, have you read this latest book? Did you see that on the news? You know, like, and we repeat these things to each other in oral tradition in a kind of sense we pass it on. All of that would have been scripture for them. It just, it just seems that 
would get misstated or misunderstood or miscommunicated, and mm -hmm. it wouldn't be the same as it started out. Yeah, so for us now, definitely, because we're not very good at remembering things. You know, we're so distracted all the time. But in ancient cultures, the, uh, the process of oral tradition was so heavily scrutinized that in some cultures, not Hebrew culture, but in some cultures, uh, if you messed up one word of a sacred text, you were executed on the spot. So, like, they, they committed these things to such serious memory because it was their heritage. Like, these laws meant life or death. This is how God try, is trying to save us as people. And so that took such reverence. And it wasn't like, well, i got to memorize the Gettysburg Address for my history report. It wasn't like that. Like, you can get a word or two wrong, and it's like, you know, Lincoln still did it, everything's fine. You know, for them, it's like, no, if you mess up, you are messing up the line of passing on this tradition. You are an obstacle now to the Lord trying to save his people. So they took it so seriously that there was such a higher level of expertise that there was very little, if any, error. In fact, they found manuscripts from different dates of different chapters. I know they, they've done this um, comparatively to different chapters of Isaiah and manuscripts they found and dated hundreds of years apart. Exactly. And, and the words are exactly the same. Exactly the same. Yeah. Yeah, Bruce. I'm not sure that Mary Magdalene, when she arrived at Peter's, uh, where he was, I'm not sure that she was, wasn't uh, influenced by the Romans, who had put guards there specifically to keep the disciples from taking him in the night and claiming he had arisen. Mm -hmm. So her statement was not, I went to the tomb and I think Jesus has risen. Yeah. No, it's it's the she's parroting the line of the Romans or the Pharisees or something. I think they took him away and hid him. Yeah. Yeah, because that's in the Gospel of Matthew, if you don't recall that account, that um, the Pharisees and elders go to Pontius Pilate and say, um, there's word that this teacher said that he was going to rise from the dead, and we don't want them to take his body and pretend that he rose, so place a Roman seal on the tomb and station guards there. And a Roman seal was a seal put on the tomb that if you moved it, it was a, um, an executionable punishment. It was a capital crime. And there's at least two or four Roman guards there, 24-7, day and night, guarding this tomb. And so the fact when she arrives and the tomb is open and the guards are gone, that would probably be the first logical conclusion. No one in their right mind except for a Roman officer would break a Roman seal. And the guards are gone, so the guards must have done something. That's why I think she says, they have taken him and I don't know where they put him. Exactly. <clears throat> Other questions, thoughts? Yeah, Nolan. Um, I just had a question. Um, I'm just curious, at this point, where is Mary, the mother of Jesus? And uh, wouldn't it be prudent to tell her as well and bring her along. And I guess, this, yeah. uh, I guess this question also extends to uh, the resurrection. Uh, there's multiple accounts of Jesus showing himself to many disciples, mm -hmm. but there's nothing in any of the synoptic gospels that he showed himself to one Mary. Not directly. So it's believed that Mary was probably in the upper room with the disciples because she was entrusted to John. Uh, at the foot of the cross. And so wherever John went from that point forward, you can assume that Mary was close by because of that moment. That happens in the Gospel of John just before this in chapter 19. That's the last time we see her, where um, he says, um, Jesus saw his mother and the disciple there whom he loved, and he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. So that moment, it says that he knew it was his job to take care of Mary. So even if he's attending to something, she's close by. She's never mentioned again in this gospel, 
Um, she is there at the tomb with Mary Magdalene in the Gospel of Luke. Um, and so we don't know when Mary Magdalene says we don't know where they put him, if that includes the mother of Jesus as well. Um, so she very likely could have been there. She's just not directly mentioned in this gospel account. But she was not far. Still obviously grieving. Any other thoughts, questions, Rick? If John wrote this, how come that he refers to himself in the third person? He refers to Peter by his first name, but he doesn't yeah. refer to himself by I went, I was running, he no. So John is very unique in the Gospels in that. See, I want to answer this succinctly, and my brain's going in seven different directions. Okay. So the other three gospels of the synoptic gospels, there's they mean the same, similar. They're about uh, what Jesus did. John is about who Jesus was. And because the focus is on the divinity of Jesus and who he is, he kind of literarily tries to push everyone back, including himself, except he wants to um, articulate the prominence of Peter because Peter is carrying on the ministry of Jesus. He's standing now in the person of Christ as the head of the church who was instituted by Christ himself, put there in that authority. So I think part of it is just to place himself back, like into the background. We don't have in the Gospel of John, um, as far as I can recall, any definitive list of all 12 of the apostles. We do in the Synoptic Gospels, and it was probably because they, that was already established. Everyone already knew who they were. John didn't need to write. He was the last Gospel written, and it was written about 20 to 30 years after the other three. So they were clearly established. John wanted to write a Gospel addressing the particular questions that the Church had about the divinity of Jesus as the Church was evolving at that time. So that's why there's stuff in John that's not in any of the other Synoptics, and there's a lot of stuff in the Synoptics that he doesn't bother including because they had already covered it. Um, so that's one reason, that I don't think he wanted himself to be in the foreground he was communicating something specific about Jesus. Secondly, to Matt's point, the disciple whom Jesus loved is all of us. And so we can place ourselves in the story. And all these moments where Jesus has these encounters with the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's mentioned five times. Once at the Last Supper, where a disciple whom Jesus loved is kind of resting on the Lord. Uh, once at the foot of the cross, when he's given to Mary. And the same, same is for us. Mary is given to us as our mother. We can see ourselves at the Last Supper when we receive the Eucharist, placing our head on the, head of, on the heart of Jesus. Uh, the third time is here, at the resurrection. We are meant to run toward the resurrected Jesus to seek him in his resurrected form. And then the last two are in this um, post-resurrection appearance of Jesus um, that is considered an epilogue and maybe an addition that wasn't in the original part of John um, in, in chapter 21 about this uh, encounter that Jesus has with them when they're out fishing after he's risen from the dead. He has this redeeming moment with Peter that John is also there, or the disciple whom Jesus loved is also there. Um, so those are some reasons. The other reason is that I have like a, I have a small theological suspicion that n not many people agree with, but I just think it's interesting to think about. The disciple whom Jesus loved isn't John. I think it's Lazarus. Because in John chapter 11, when John goes to, when Jesus goes to um, Bethany to raise Lazarus from the dead, it says the sisters went out, um, sent word to Jesus saying, Master, the one you love is ill. The one you love. And Lazarus was a disciple of Jesus. The disciple, that phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved, is not mentioned anywhere before this. It's only mentioned after Lazarus is raised from the dead. And so I think there is a, a, a small chance that this could be Lazarus, because it's, he's not mentioned that he's an apostle. 
And then in the post-resurrection account in chapter 21, when it lists some of the disciples who were there, it says it's Zebedee's sons and two others of his disciples. So John is referenced as a son of Zebedee, James and John, in that sense. But that's not the case anywhere else in the gospel. So I think that is a possibility as to why. But many theologians and in the tradition of the church, it is always kind of held that that is John. Um, so there's a possibility, I think, that it might not be. Or even that Lazarus had a nickname that was John, because John was a very common name common name at the time, and you often had multiple names, a public name, a private name, a Greek name, a Hebrew name, all these different sorts of things. So, yeah, that's a possibility. Yeah. Would that make Lazarus So there's a difference between being an apostle or a disciple. And um, so we know the apostles were there at the Last Supper, but it doesn't mean that more people weren't. Um, we know the same thing about the upper room, because it says, um, I believe in, in Acts chapter 1, or yeah, chapter 1, that there were 120 disciples at the time of Jesus' death. Um, I believe that's how many. Well, I'm pretty sure. Um, at, least, uh, at, at the most, I believe, 120. Uh, and so that's a huge number apart from the 12. The 12 were a group that were specifically called to the ministry of being apostle, which means to be sent. They were specifically sent out to be the heads of the, the local churches, sent out with authority to drive out demons during the time of Jesus' life and ministry. Um, and then they had... Uh, are the first bishops. They're given this authority and then they start churches. And all the other disciples help support and populate those churches and go and help on their missionary journeys and help St. Paul and things like that. So, um, yeah, I think that, that it's, it's a possible way to kind of rectify that. But um, most of the time you'll hear, and it's perfectly acceptable and theologically accurate to agree, that the disciple of Jesus' love is John. So, and I think that's probably the case, but I like playing devil's advocate, or I guess heaven's advocate. I'm thinking of other, <laughs> other possibilities. Greg? So, following along with that, the apostles to be were disciples. So, they, did they become officially apostles at the time of Pentecost? No, so in the other uh, gospels, they are clearly set apart and listed as like among the disciples. 12 were chosen to be apostles, and these are their names. So we have that language that's used in the other three Gospels, and they're listed. Um, Andrew, Bartholomew, James the Greater, James the Lesser, John, Jude, Judas Iscariot, was replaced by Matthias later, Matthew, uh, Philip, Simon Peter, Simon the Zealot, and Thomas. Those are the 12. Um, but there are others who traveled with Jesus from the very beginning, like when uh, Judas is replaced and they have to elect a replacement, they ask who has been with us since the very beginning, and they draw lots, and there's one named Justus and one named Matthias, and Matthias is the one who replaces him. So there's people who've been around this whole time um, who are disciples, but the 12 that are definitively named as apostles, they are given special and specific authority, and they are the ones who are always traveling with Jesus. Disciples may have like come for part of that journey or have supported him in different areas, um, and that following would have grown, uh, and Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Susanna would have been among them, but those he called specifically are listed in the other Synoptic Gospels. And how early? Uh, right, in the Synoptic Gospels, like right toward the beginning of his ministry. He calls them, they're listed there, and then he goes about the rest of his public ministry, uh, and then there's the authoritative moments where he gives like Peter the uh, the keys of the kingdom and says that you're going to be the rock and upon this rock I build my church and then makes his way to Jerusalem. So timing is hard in all the gospels as well because we don't have all the markers in each gospel of like 
which Passover are they celebrating? Is this year one, year two, or year three of his ministry? But uh, in terms of pages, usually by chapter, gosh, I would say in the synoptics, probably in each one, by by halfway through, definitely, but usually by chapter six or seven, they're, met, they're mentioned in a listed form. Well, also, isn't it that Jesus chose the apostles specifically? Mm -hmm. These weren't hangers along or groupies or anything like that. Yeah. He specifically called them out. Yeah, said, come follow me. Yes. So any one of the Gospels who Jesus specifically looks at and says, come after me, come follow me, that's rabbinical language where rabbi is asking for someone to be their specific disciple. Uh, those all are one of the 12 apostles who he uses that language for and who accept. He uses that language for other people, but they don't accept. So the rich young man, I believe he says that too, but the rich young man goes away sad. He's not able to answer the call. And there's other people I think he uses that, that language toward. But everyone who... who um, says yes and follows Jesus using that kind of rabbinical invitation language is one of the 12 apostles. Yeah, the rest could have been people who just, yeah, I'll follow him, you know, on, on for the ride, volunteering, you know, so we don't know. Yeah, Bruce? Perhaps to support your idea, I note that Peter is not mentioned as believing he ran in the tomb, mm -hmm. but nobody says anything about him believing at the moment. Mm -hmm. The second person if he was Lazarus, has an experience of being brought up from the dead. That's right. He might have more affinity with that concept than these other people who are still trying to make sense of it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I can totally imagine that Lazarus speaking in. Oh, I totally know what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It does say that he saw and believed. Yes, yeah. So that's one. So belief is a huge theme in the Gospel of John. You will see that word belief, truth, grace, light. Those words show up all over the Gospel of, of John. Huge themes. So belief is very important because, again, John is trying to articulate belief that Jesus is the divine Son of God. So that word believe will show up everywhere. So this could mean that he believed the testimony of Mary Magdalene because at this time the testimony of a woman was not admissible in court. And so that's why two men go to verify eyewitness testimony that the tomb is empty so they can come back and relay it to the officials, the other apostles, whoever they need to relay it to, and that it will be accepted as a verifiable testimony. That was just the cultural laws and norms of that time. Um, so that he believed a Mary Magdalene, um, that he believed that Jesus rose, potentially, um, or that he just had faith, you know, in some capacity. Um, but it's pointing to that particular that particular theme. Yeah. Back to the apostles, why do we consider Paul an apostle? So Paul is kind of like a self-named apostle, and nobody ever like questions it. Yeah. Um, and so he is he's he's he is an apostle. It's listed in scripture that he calls himself an apostle. Other people consider him an apostle but he's not one of the 12. Because the word apostle means one who is sent. And Paul was clearly sent. He went on these uh, you know, crazy missionary journeys all over uh, modern day, the modern-day Mediterranean um, to evangelize and start all these churches. But he was not one of the 12. He never knew Jesus in his earthly life. He encountered Jesus only when the resurrected Jesus um, you know, comes to him on the road to Damascus, and he has his conversion. Yes. Um, so they mentioned that the uh, shroud is rolled. Mm -hmm. Is there any other meaning behind that? Because I know in the sun it says that it is possibly evidence that the grave was dropped. 
Yes, yeah, so linen was valuable. So if you were a robber, you would not throw the linen away. Secondly, as I said, his body was anointed with this myrrh-like superglue. You would not have been able to get that off. So if, in fact, Jesus was just taken, and the cloth, it would have been torn to shreds, if they could even get it off. Uh, and so the fact that it's rolled up neatly in a separate place, A, that that's a detail that's remembered and written down, but also that it's in a separate place. I don't know if you do this, but when you like leave a hotel room, like I always make my bed. I imagine like Jesus did that when he like rose from the dead. He's just like, all right, I'm just gonna like fold my cloth, put it over here. Like he likes to leave it as he as it was, right? That's how I am. Um, and it's just a fun little detail. But who would have done that? No robber wouldn't have done that. A Roman soldier wouldn't have bothered doing that. You know why separate the two cloths when they were on the same body? All of that. So it's all considered evidence that he must have risen from the dead because otherwise it would still be adhered to his body, or robbers would have taken it because of its value. And the thing about the shroud, I hope you will come on April 21st to hear about the science behind the shroud uh, of Turin. Father Robert Spitzer is coming to give a talk in the church at 7 that day, the Thursday after Easter. Um, but the thing about the shroud is that, you know, they've studied this, like, spectral analysis of this, this linen. And there's been some disputes about the carbon dating of it and that it was from the medieval era, but then people came back and said, well, they that it had been damaged so much that they took a sample from patched areas or uh, repaired areas, and so it wasn't accurate. And other ones have dated it back to the time of Jesus and so forth. Uh, some Eucharistic miracles I have heard um, have compared the DNA, or at least the blood type, from blood samples taken from the Shroud of Turin, and they've matched. Um, but the thing about um, the, the amount of radiation needed to imprint the image of Jesus' body on this cloth no scientist or instrument known to our you know, technological world today could, uh, imp could mimic that. It would take like the equivalent of like two explosions of the sun, like, like megatons of joules of energy and power, like the equivalent of a big bang happening basically under this cloth to radiate uh, that image and kind of ultraviolet light onto this, this linen. And so it's clear, like, something incredibly powerful, supernatural happened there. And it's interesting that it's kind of like that big bang moment of Jesus resurrecting points us all the way back to Genesis, because how does this start? On the first day, just like in Genesis, of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb, went early in the morning while it was still dark. Just like in Genesis, where all there was was darkness and chaos, and the Spirit of God hovered over the darkness of the waters. And then what does he say? Let there be light. And then the sun comes up, and Jesus is risen. The light of the angels, the light of the good news, the light of all of this stuff. Like, there's this comparison here. And there's this beautiful, it continues into the, the, the passage we didn't read. Uh, we're going to kind of, I think we skip over it in the coming week, which is too bad. Um, we skip over to a later appearance. But this encounter that Jesus has with Mary Magdalene, where she confuses him for the gardener. And it's interesting that in the resurrection, they're in a garden. And he calls her woman, just like in the Garden of Eden, Adam called Eve woman. And that there was a divine gardener who created all of this. And so what went wrong in a garden is now being redeemed in a different garden by the, by the resurrection. That's undone all of the power that sin had over us. And it's just a beautiful language of, of John. John is written in some of the most like complex, beautiful Greek prose. Um, and I think there was a report... Who was this? I think St. Augustine was given a copy, I think, of the Gospel of Mark. And the, the, the Greek in the Gospel of Mark was so bad that St. Augustine was like, I can't believe that this is like in the Bible. This is like ridiculous. He thought it was like a joke. 
that it was like so simple because they were just trying to get it out there. But John is so eloquently written, that's why it's in this kind of tier apart from the other three Gospels. It has these rich, beautiful theological themes to really uh, communicate who Jesus was, who Jesus was. And so all of that comes forth in this particular passage. Again, on the first day of the week, uh, the first day is considered the eighth day. It's after the seventh day. So it's the start of a new week, but it's also the eighth day, the day of the resurrection. Um, and so that's why we have moved our worship from the Sabbath, which is traditionally the seventh day of the week, uh, to Sunday, the first day of the week, because it is the day of the resurrection. Um, eight is a number signifying eternity. Traditional baptismal fonts always had eight sides for that reason. They're octagonal. Um, and Mary Magdala is there while it's still dark. She saw the stone removed from the tomb, so she ran. Running was something that was considered very undignified. You know, people who were very important did not run. Um, people who were servants or slaves were the ones who ran. Um, but St. Bernard of Clairvaux um, nicknamed Mary Magdalene because of the scene, the apostle to the apostles. That she is the one who is sent to the ones who have been sent by Jesus. She's the one to go and proclaim the good news to them, the first to see it. Um, and she goes to who? Simon Peter, obviously, because he's the leader of the early church, the first pope, and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, who we've talked about, probably John, could be someone else, and told them they've taken the Lord from the tomb. We don't know where they put him. We, meaning there are other people potentially there, and that she does not expect there's going to be some kind of resurrection. So they go out to the tomb. They both ran. We have this race. Uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved gets there first. He bent down and saw the burial cloths there. This is something interesting Whenever you see an image of the empty tomb, you see this big like doorway, right? This big, massive stone. Tombs about that side, uh, about that time, the entrances were about three feet tall. So that's why you had to bend down to look in. As they're not in any images we see of the tomb of Jesus. It's always this massive, like, he just walked through the front door of his house. Like, it's just huge. But that was not very economical. Like, why carve this giant passage when all you have to do is kind of like put a body in there? Uh, and then you would crawl in, anoint it, crawl back out, roll a smaller stone in front of it. So someone could potentially move this stone on their own. So it's significant that we know there was a Roman seal on it, there was a guard uh, in place, and things like that. Um, when Simon Peter arrived, after he went into the tomb, now this is something that was risky in Torah law, because if you made contact with the dead body, you were considered ritually unclean. You could not go into the temple, you had to undergo purification sacrifices, uh, you had to go outside of the town, do certain cleansing rituals, and you would uh, usually be considered clean by that night or after a week, depending on the circumstances, um, how you encountered the body, whether you touched it directly or not, things like that. Um, see the burial cloths there, the cloth that had covered his head, two separate cloths, not with them, but in a separate place. Again, evidence that he has been unbound by his own power. Remember how Lazarus comes out? He's hopping, he's bound. He did not have the power to unbind himself. Jesus alone had the power to do that, the power to raise Lazarus, the power to raise himself, and completely just dissipate you know, from that place and resurrect anew outside of the tomb. Again, this race, the other had arrived at the tomb first. He saw and believed, again, believes this common theme. We can uh, juxtapose this uh, against the encounter of Thomas, um, you know, where he doubts, which happens later in this chapter. Um, we have seen the Lord. Uh, and he says, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the nail marks, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I will not believe. Uh, we've talked about that before, I think, in Bible study, that I don't think Thomas is fairly uh, accused of being doubting. I think he just couldn't bear to accept that Jesus had risen from the dead unless he saw it with his own eyes, because he couldn't bear losing him again. 
Because there's a lot of evidence previous to this in the gospel that Thomas was completely devoted to Jesus. In fact, when Jesus says, where I am going, you do not want to go, you, you cannot go. And Thomas is like, where are you going? We'll follow you. Uh, or when he says, um, you know, my hour is not yet coming and people are worried about Jesus uh, going to Jerusalem. He says, we will go to Jerusalem with you. We will die with you there. Like that's the kind of follower that Thomas is. Uh, and so it's hard enough for him to believe. Imagine how difficult it would be for all of them who loved this man, who journeyed with him, you know, they stayed together, ate together, had lived life together, witnessed these miracles, performed them together for three whole years, and all of a sudden he's taken in this horrific way. And you have to deal with this grief and this loss and the shock and the trauma of that. And someone comes along just a couple days later and says, oh no, it's, he's back. You know, I'm nowhere close ready to believe that. To lose him again? Are you kidding me? How much more would that would hurt? It's no wonder why they doubt and why they're so destitute in this position. But the one who arrived at the tomb first sees and believes. Maybe because it's Lazarus and he has firsthand experience. Maybe because he's John who just has that childlike faith, being younger, willing to accept that Jesus can do anything, has less, um, you know, uh, bumps in the road in his life to make him more bitter or, you know, uh, unwilling to believe that the miraculous might be as possible. Um, but they did not yet understand the scripture that he had to rise from the dead. And brothers and sisters, this... This is really why Easter is so important and central, because nothing in our faith makes sense without the resurrection. Uh, and if you want just a good summary of that, read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, it's the gospel teaching, and it says, For I handed on to you what is first importance for what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And it goes on to say in verse uh, 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then neither has Christ been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then empty too is our preaching. Empty to your faith. Empty to your faith. So like as Catholics, we think like, what's the central thing for us as Catholics? Oh, it's the Eucharist. Well, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then the Eucharist means nothing. It was a weird version of the Passover that this teacher did before he died. That's all that it would be. But the fact that Jesus rose from the dead changes everything. It validates the sacraments, it validates the institution of the church, the authority he gave to the apostles, the miraculous presence of the Holy Spirit among us, and the fact that it has persisted for 2,000 years. And that's a beautiful thing, brothers and sisters. And we're a part of it at this moment in salvation history. And so this Sunday for Easter, let's remember that. Let's celebrate that, like the joy and the beauty of the resurrection. Because if the resurrection really happened, which we see evidence for here in, in chapter 20, then we have to believe everything else. We have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. No one else in history has risen from the dead. No one else ever will again, at least not through the power of Jesus. And by the way, the people that Jesus rises from the dead, that's not a resurrection. That's a resuscitation. He resuscitates them. He brings them back to life. Yes, they had been dead. But to resurrect oneself, that's something that only Jesus could do because he has divine authority and the power to do it. And that changes the world. And so everything that we believe depends on that. So this Sunday, Easter Sunday, let's remember that, reflect on that, and remember that's the central, beautiful thing in our, in our faith, of the Christian faith, of the Catholic faith. Everything depends on it and hangs on it, and it's a beautiful gift. And it's a promise to us that one day we will rise too. So let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Jesus, thank you for this reminder that you are the risen Lord, that yes, you still retain your human nature, you still know what it is to walk in our shoes, to taste death, grief, suffering, and worry, but you also know that there is a promise for something greater at the end of the road for us, that death is not the end, but it is a door. A door to some great, beautiful promise that was originally given to us in Eden, 
that was never fully realized because of sin, but now you have redeemed through your crucifixion and resurrection, and that we can partake in if we simply follow you as your disciples and seek to love you and love others as best we can, to follow the things you you offer us, your teachings, not because they oppress us or because um, we're told to, because we have to follow the rules, but because they set us free. So we pray, Lord, this Sunday we would know how free we really are. We pray all of these things in your most precious name. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.